Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. In episodes one and two, we talked about Twelfth Night as a pivotal moment in Shakespeare's career, a bittersweet transitional point between his celebratory festive comedies and what are called his problem plays, plays that demand engagement with irresolvable social problems. Twelfth Night is still concerned with the central issue of romantic comedy, love, and how we look for it. But, as we see in the following speeches, this play examines many different kinds of love and the pleasure and pain that go with them. Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at the University of Oxford, guides our discussion. This speech, from Act One, is the very beginning of the play. It introduces the play's romantic entanglements and sets the tone for its peculiar combination of melancholy and mirth. The Duke Orsino, pining with love for the Countess Olivia, describes his experience as both painful and sweet, and invites the audience to assess how genuine this love is. If music be the food of love, play on. Give me excess of it, that surfeiting, the appetite may sicken and so die. That strain again, it had a dying fall. Oh, it came o'er my ear like the sweet sound that breathes upon a bank of violets, stealing and giving odor. Enough, no more. Tis not so sweet now as it was before. O spirit of love, how quick and fresh art thou, that notwithstanding thy capacity receiveth as the sea, naught enters there of what validity and pitch soe'er, but falls into abatement and low price, even in a minute. So full of shapes is fancy, that it alone is high fantastical. I saw a production of Twelfth Night when I was a teenager. I don't remember actually all that much about it, except for the very opening, which in it began with the Liebestod from Tristan and Isolde, and then Orsino's famous line, if music be the food of love, play on. And for the first time, I think I thought, and I think this has really shaped my view of the play, I thought Orsino is talking about a huge passion. He's not just talking about someone plinking away on a lute or something. This is a really big scale emotional drama right from the start. And I think that's affected how I've seen the play ever since. I think this is an extraordinary speech to open the play with. And this language of indolent excess, surfeiting, appetite, strain, 
dying fall, the sweet sound of the bank of violets stealing and giving odour. This is a really decadent kind of a speech. It's it's steeped in the self-indulgence of love, the sensual pleasure of the sensation of love. And it's not at all about the love object. I think that's what's really missing here. This is about the, the sense of being in love, what it's like to be in love. It's not about the love object, not even about idealising the love object. So this is a, a deeply narcissistic version uh, of love set out in this extraordinary mannered kind of poetry. And by mannered, I suppose I mean this at this point in Shakespeare's career. Blank verse we know is the iambic pentameter, the five-beat, ten-syllable line that is blank because it's unrhymed. And how Shakespeare's use of this sort of foundational unit changes over his career is that it's, it's how he uses the end of the line. So broadly speaking, if you look at a speech from early in Shakespeare's career, it will have a piece of punctuation at the end of each line. And that's to say the, the unit of the line is a unit of syntactical sense and it's natural to pause at the end of the line. And contrastingly, if you look at a speech from the second half of Shakespeare's career, it will almost certainly not have a piece of punctuation at the end of the line. And you will read over the end and, the, and the, that pentameter beat is, is disguised or more flexible because of that. And I say all that because Olsino's opening speech here is really heavily end-stopped. That's to say it's got that punctuation. And I think by this point that feels, in Shakespearean language, like quite a formal self-indulgent or self-grandizing kind of way of speaking. This isn't just talking, this is giving a speech. And Olsino is, is giving a speech, it's, it's beautiful, but it's decadent. And I suppose that self-indulgent formal tone as well as the self-indulgent vocabulary is one of the play one of the ways the play suggests to us at the opening that this is a high emotion that is not going to be fulfilled in the course of the play don't put all your own hopes behind this because it's not how it's going to work out and these are clues i suppose which show us this is this is excessive this is unnecessary, this is not going to be rewarded uh, in the play. This speech comes from Act One. Festy the Fool has just made a witty proof that the Lady Olivia could be called a fool, and he implied that her steward, Malvolio, is a fool as well. Malvolio responds with these sneering remarks about Festy, and Olivia responds with a gentle reproof that highlights some of the play's key themes, wisdom, folly, and the proper direction for love. I marvel your ladyship takes delight in such a barren rascal. I saw him put down the other day with an ordinary fool that has no more brain than a stone. Look you now, he's out of his guard already. Unless you laugh and minister occasion to him, he is gagged. I protest, I take these wise men that crow so at these set kind of fools no better than the fool's anies. Oh, you are sick of self-love, Malvolio, and taste with a distempered appetite. To be generous, 
guiltless and of free disposition is to take those things for bird bolts that you deem cannon bullets. There is no slander in an allowed fool, though he do nothing but rail, nor no railing in a known discreet man, though he do nothing but reprove. In, in the play text, the play is first published in 1623 in the first folio. In the play text, Feste is called Clown throughout and only once called called Feste. And Feste, I think, is, is, is a role rather than a proper name. It's related to festival. It's like being called Clown. It's, it's not really his personal name. And in some ways, he isn't really a character who's a, a sort of a person or a, a human being. He's a function. He's a function in the play, just as he's a function in, a, in Olivia's household. And that function of the allowed fool is traditionally to uh, use a kind of jesting or bantering form of particularly wordplay, perhaps also music and other kinds of tricks to show the vanity or the the foolishness of of the of the rest of the world and so the great trick of the fool is to show really how everybody else other than him is is foolish because they don't have the insight that he does and we see Feste do that in a great set piece about Olivia's brother where he says he will he will show her that she is the fool and and takes her through this sort of illogical logic uh, where she has to agree that since her brother is in is in heaven, there is no reason to mourn for him. So that establishes him and his procedures as a kind of verbal version of the of the inversion and the turning things on its head, which is such a feature of uh, festival ritual. The wisdom of fools and the folly of the wise is a common theme in Shakespearean comedies, especially Twelfth Night. Festi begins this encounter by exclaiming, Wit, put me into good fooling. Those wits that think they have thee do very oft prove fools, and I, that am sure I lack thee, may pass for a wise man. Better a witty fool than a foolish wit. Malvolio, in his caustic remarks, denies that Festi is a witty fool, calling him barren and gagged, unable to produce any clever jokes. But by his response, Malvolio reveals himself as one of those foolish wits, someone who thinks so highly of his wisdom and his good qualities that he cannot stand any insult to his pride, even from a fool. As Olivia reminds Malvolio, Festi is allowed and, in fact, encouraged to tease and provoke those around him. But Malvolio feels the provocations as cannon bullets because of his inflated sense of pride, or, as Olivia calls it, self-love. His self-love makes him taste with a distempered appetite, that is, assess things as other than what they really are. He values Festi too little because he prizes himself too much. In comedy, which pushes its characters to send love outwards towards romantic partners, inordinate love of oneself is not a desirable trait. We noted in discussing Orsino's speech that his sort of self-indulgent narcissism is not going to be rewarded. Neither is Malvolio's. 
In fact, it is the very fault of self-love that sets him up for his fall. Maria describes Malvolio in terms very similar to Olivia's. Malvolio, Maria says, is best persuaded of himself that it is his grounds of faith that all that look on him love him, and on that vice in him will my revenge find notable cause to work. He is all the readier to believe what Maria's forged letter says, that Olivia loves him because he has such love for himself. Of course, Olivia does respect and value Malvolio. She ends her remarks here by describing Festi and then Malvolio. There is no slander in an allowed fool, though he do nothing but rail, nor no railing in a known discreet man, though he do nothing but reprove. Her balanced parallel clauses and repetition of rail link these two characters and indicate that both have their own important role. If Festi's folly is valuable, so is Malvolio's discretion and prudence. Sebastian even describes Olivia herself as discreet. It's when one goes too far in either direction that correction becomes necessary. Maria and Sir Toby's plot will attempt to correct Malvolio's excessive self-regard. Whether their own plot goes too far is a question for readers of the play. This speech comes from Act Two, just after we meet Viola's twin brother, Sebastian. He was rescued from the shipwreck by a sailor named Antonio, to whom he now bids farewell. Antonio's response brings out another dimension of love as explored in this play. If you will not murder me for my love, let me be your servant. If you will not undo what you have done, that is, kill him whom you have recovered, desire it not. Fare you well at once. My bosom is full of kindness, and I am yet so near the manners of my mother that, upon the least occasion more, mine eyes will tell tales of me. I am bound to the Count Orsino's court. Farewell. The gentleness of all the gods go with thee. I have many enemies in Orsino's court, else would I very shortly see thee there. But come what may, I do adore thee so, that danger shall seem sport, and I will go. So this is a lovely exchange between Antonio and Sebastian, and it brings out one of the overlapping themes of the play, which is between love and service, the idea that to be a servant, to be a lover, these are all, these are similar kind of or adjacent power relations. Antonio Antonio wants to be Sebastian's servant, just as we've we've already heard Viola wants to be the servant of, of Olivia and then puts herself in service uh, to Orsino. So service and love, the position of servant, is very overcharged, actually, throughout Twelfth Night, and here's another example of it. And Sebastian's kind of rejection of this is is confused and and confusing and and often confused or confusing speeches in Shakespeare actors tell us 
tend to suggest over-emotion or or emotion that hasn't fully been articulated or can't be fully articulated. So as Sebastian is saying that he is very emotional, I'm yet so near the manners of my mother, my eyes will tell tales of me. It's a very long, involved way of saying, I'm going to cry if you keep going or I'm, I'm near to tears. Uh, I love the fact that Sebastian says where he's going, even in the act of saying, no, don't don't come with me. That seems a real sign to me of the dividedness about this scene of parting, which is also a scene of kind of bonding and, and reconnection. If if you really wanted to break with someone and, and to go off somewhere, you wouldn't tell them where you were going. And Sebastian leaves on that note farewell. And Antonio, I don't know if you can hear it, but you can certainly see it if you go into, if you, if you go into the speech on the page. Antonio begins to speak in verse. He's been speaking in prose with Sebastian. What's important about those forms is when they change, is when uh, a scene that has been in prose, which has quite loose rhythms, turns to be in, in verse. It would be like a moment in a, in a jazz song or something where the tempo changes, you would you would be able to hear that. And speaking in verse and speaking in a soliloquy, speaking alone on stage, those two formal factors both give this speech of Antonio's much more weight, much more emotional weight and much more authenticity. And this word that we've talked about before, this word that, that, that seems most important to me here is, uh, come what may, I do adore thee so, that danger shall seem sport and I will go. Antonio sets up here why Orsino's court is dangerous to him and why it is going to be a risk to him to follow Sebastian. But nevertheless, in that couplet, which is such a su- su- such a common way that Shakespeare ends a scene and gives us a decisive sort of decision point or a, or, or a moment to work with, that couplet, so go, Antonio vows that his... His his passions will take him to follow Sebastian. And we can see love, desire, kill, adore. This is a, this is an overwrought exchange. It's it, it's high emotion. I think that Shakespeare has given has brought Antonio into the play to give us an example of a different kind of another kind of love, not necessarily a different kind. Often performances understand Antonio and Sebastian's love as homosexual in some either reciprocally or or one-sidedly. And certainly Antonio's description of his feelings for Sebastian as adoration, that's a pretty, even, even in the language of male friendship, which is more intimate than we would often use now. It was very common for men to talk about loving their, their 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 male friends or or being feeling intimately sort of recognised or known by them or them as soulmates and so on. Even even in that context, I think I, I do adore these. So is 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 quite is is quite passionate, and that gives us a slightly different view of this relationship because Antonio then becomes the model of generous or selfless love that what he tends to be doing is giving things to Sebastian protecting him and then ultimately you know giving him away or watching while he is given away uh, to someone else and that's a contrast with 
what's often been seen as a theme of the play, which is narcissism or what Olivia says to Malvolio is self-love. You are sick of self-love. And Antonio's relation to Sebastian could be a, a, a counter to that. So I think he's a really interesting character who, together with the cross-dressing and the ambiguities, really brings this play out for me as a as a depiction of different kinds, different versions of love and different versions of, of intimacy, including same-sex intimacy of different sorts. This speech comes from Act Two. Olivia has conceived a sudden passion for Orsino's messenger, Cesario. She sends Malvolio to give Cesario a ring, telling him it's a ring from Orsino that she wishes to return, but it's really a ring of her own, a secret message of love to Cesario. When Viola, in her guise as Cesario, realises how Olivia feels, she responds with this soliloquy that expresses her confusion and anticipates how the play's confusions will be resolved. I left no ring with her. What means this lady? Fortune forbid my outside hath not charmed her. She made good view of me, indeed so much, that methought her eyes had lost her tongue, for she did speak in starts distractedly. She loves me sure. The cunning of her passion invites me in this churlish messenger. None of my lord's ring, why he sent her none. I am the man. If it be so as tis, poor lady, she were better love a dream. Disguise. I see thou art a wickedness wherein the pregnant enemy does much. How easy is it for the proper false in women's waxen hearts to set their forms? Alas, our frailty is the cause, not we. For such as we are made of, such we be. How were this fadge? My master loves her dearly, and I, poor monster, fond as much on him, and she, mistaken, seems to dote on me. What will become of this? As I am man, my state is desperate for my master's love as I am woman. Now, alas, the day, what thriftless sigh shall poor Olivia breathe? Oh, time, thou must untangle this, not I. It is too hard a knot for me to untie. So this moment where Viola realises the confusions and the human cost, maybe, of her appearance as Cesario is uh, Viola's longest speech after her first scene. It's an important moment when she is alone on stage in a kind of soliloquy form. So comedies are not really big on soliloquy. Comic characters understand themselves through dialogue, through talking to other people. That's the message of comedy, that we are most ourselves in company. The message of tragedy is kind of we're most ourselves when we're on our own, and that's why tragedy tends to be all about soliloquizing. But in comedy, I think soliloquies tend to be moments of of crisis or or worry. They're moments which perhaps express something which is slightly contrary to the comic mood or the comic uh, resolution of the plot. 
And here, uh, Viola's speech is all about confusion. She has some slightly abstracted and complex forms of speech which elevate what she's saying and elevate perhaps the jeopardy of the moment. Disguise, I see thou art a wickedness wherein the pregnant enemy does much. How easy it is for the proper false in women's waxen hearts to set their forms. Our frailty is the cause, not we. So she's talking, she's picking up the language of essential female conduct that she and Orsino have have discussed. And she's thinking about, yeah, she's thinking about how a woman in particular has been has been caught up in her in her disguise and that language of being caught up the language of knotting or something is explicit in the end of the speech time thou must untangle this not i tis too hard a knot for me to untie and that's a a, a really interesting and relevant synopsis of comedy itself in in which it's it's usually the the axis of time which resolves problems. They they get sorted out, not necessarily through direct intervention or through character, but just through the unfolding of plot, the, un- the untangling of plot. So I think what's interesting about this speech is that Viola is alone on stage, that she's a little bit discomforted by her encounter with Olivia. She is she recognises the triangle that, that that the plot has established and asks the question sort of rhetorically, how is, how is the play, how's the comedy going to work out now? She asks it, of course, just as we have met Sebastian, we've met her brother, who's given the answer. So it's an example of uh, dramatic irony, I guess. The dramatic irony is when we as audience members know more than the characters and... Viola's questions in this in this speech are implicitly answered, have been answered in the preceding scene with the introduction of Sebastian. This speech comes from Act Two. Mariah, Sir Toby, Sir Andrew and Festy have just set in motion their revenge plot against Malvolio. They leave him a letter forged in Olivia's handwriting that appears to declare Olivia's love for Malvolio. Here, Malvolio reads the letter and is entirely taken in. The scene offers wonderful potential for comedy, but also for discomfort, as the happiness Malvolio expresses here will ultimately convert to grief and anger as a result of this deception. M-O-A-I. This simulation is not as the former, and yet, to crush this a little... It would bow to me, for every one of these letters are in my name. Soft, here follows prose. If this fall into thy hand, revolve. In my stars I am above thee. But be not afraid of greatness. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Thy fates open their hands, let thy blood and spirit embrace them, and to inure thyself to what thou art like to be, cast thy humble slough and appear fresh. Be opposite with a kinsman, surly with servants, let thy tongue tang arguments of state. Put thyself into the trick of singularity. She thus advises thee that 
sighs for thee. Remember who commended thy yellow stockings and wished to see thee ever cross-gartered. I say, remember, go to, thou art made, if thou desirest to be so. If not, let me see thee a steward still, the fellow of servants, and not worthy to touch fortune's fingers. Farewell, she that would alter services with thee, the fortunate, unhappy. Daylight and champion discovers not more. This is open. I will be proud. I will read politic authors. I will baffle Sir Toby. I will wash off gross acquaintance. I will be point devised, the very man. I do not now fool myself to let imagination jade me, for every reason excites to this that my lady loves me. She did commend my yellow stockings of late. She did praise my leg being cross-guarded. And in this, she manifests herself to my love and with a kind of injunction drives me to these habits of her liking. Oh, I thank my stars. I am happy. I will be strange, stout, in yellow stockings and cross-guarded, even with the swiftness of putting on. Jove and my stars be praised. Here is yet a postscript. Thou canst not choose but know who I am. If thou entertainst my love, let it appear in thy smiling. Thy smiles become thee well. Therefore in my presence still smile, dear my sweet, I prithee. <laughs> Jove, I thank thee. I will smile. I will do everything that thou wilt have me. Malvolio here is reading the letter, ostensibly from Olivia, but as we know, not so. It starts with this code or anagram, M-O-A-I, which is a sort of miniature version of the kinds of contorted logic that Marvolio is being encouraged uh, to apply to the letter, that he feels as if he is working something out about it and working out for himself how this applies to him and who has written it, when of course he's falling completely into a trap which has been uh, set for him. So he realises that these are all, all these letters are in my name. And to me, that it, it's emphasises something which is quite odd about the play, which is the, the overlap between the names. It's not exactly clear why Viola and Olivia are almost anagrams of each other, and Malvolio too seems a version of that, but with this negative mal in, in front of it. There seems there's some circulation of, of letters and of identities going on in the naming in, in this play, which is, which is emphasised here in the, in the riddle. And we can see that Marvolio's set up here with a, a an idea about social mobility that the play itself is is absolutely against. It's so interesting to me that this has become one of the great quotations from the play when it's when it's when it's something that the play itself so vehemently disagrees with. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. That's a model of how you can rise in a society, and it's a model which is encouraging Malvolio to this overweening sense of of being the husband of of Olivia but it's not what the play believes 
this is not a play in which people marry out of out of their station or have greatness thrust upon them. You're either, I think in Shakespeare, you're great when you start or, or you're not great at all. We've got this very elaborate, mannered letter, ostensibly from Olivia, and the fortunate, unhappy signature is the, the sort of paradox of of love in this play and perhaps the paradox of the of the play itself the movement towards kind of enjoyment and towards melancholy which so characterizes uh, twelfth night and then we see malvolio moving round one of the things that's so prominent to me in the second part of this speech is is how often he uses the word i i will be proud i will read politic authors i will baffle sir toby and then most sadly, I think, for, for the audience who knows what's happening, I am happy. I thank my stars. I am happy. So this is a strange kind of assertion of self of a Malvolio who isn't a steward, isn't pre- predominantly defined by being in the service of someone else and being in relation to someone else, but is is him is himself the first person in his own in his own narrative. Uh, and that's a moment of self-assertion which the play uh, snatches from him. I will be strange, stout in yellow stockings and cross-gartered. Uh, the play has three, I think, mentions of what Malvolio is going to look like before it actually brings him in on stage. This is a very careful piece of stage choreography, which is ramping up the expectation about how extraordinary this this presence is going to be on the stage. And here is Malvolio uh, starting it off. I th- Jove, I thank thee. I will smile. I will do everything that thou wilt have me. I think, I don't know if it was always like this, but I think for modern audiences, this is such a painful speech. It's a speech which looks like a speech of self-realisation, but which is the ultimate speech of self-deception. Malvolio is deceiving himself, but he's also very actively being deceived uh, by the other characters and in some sense by the play itself. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin-McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriand. This episode featured performances from the following actors. Jeffrey Blair Cornell for Orsino, If Music Be the Food of Love, and for Malvolio, M-O-A-I. Amanda Harris for Malvolio and Olivia, I Marvel Your Ladyship Takes Delight. Kelly Hunter, MBE, for Antonio and Sebastian, If You Will Not Murder Me for My Love. Katie Stevens, for Viola, I Left No Ring With Her. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare After All. Catherine Belsey, Twelfth Night, A Modern Perspective. Emma Smith, This is Shakespeare, and the following editions of Twelfth Night, the 2010 RSC Shakespeare, and the 2016 Norton Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available exclusively on Himalaya Learning. You can gain access to the full course by going to Himalaya.com slash Shakespeare. Thank you for listening. See you next time.